So I was at a Starbucks a few years back, long line. There's a gal about halfway in the line. How are you, by the way? You guys good? You good? All right. It's awesome. Online community. Hello to you. Speedway. South Sanctuary. This woman, she's, um, she's well put together in about the middle stages of life. And uh, this little four-year-old girl, I would suspect, she's about three or four, she comes up to her, doesn't know her, and she says, hi, who are you? And this woman says, well, I'm, I'm Nancy, who are you? And she goes, I'm Phoebe, who are you? And she goes, uh, well, I, um, I am an aunt to, to Julie, I have a niece. Oh, who are you? She goes, oh, uh, well, I, I have two cats, which no one wanted to know, you know, and that she have to go, and she goes, well, who are you? Uh, well, I work at a bank. Who are you? She goes, well, I, uh, gosh, I, uh, I grew up in Des Moines. <laughs> I'm like, and we're all sitting around here taking this moment in and starting to feel a little uncomfortable. Because I think, I think the little four-year-old just found a new phrase, and she's just trying it on. She doesn't know what, you know, what she's doing. But what she's doing is she is just unlayering the existential onion on this woman. And it's getting uncomfortable because you get a sense that she's not comfortable with her answers. That we actually, in a moment, we got to a pretty vulnerable place. For this woman, she was taken on an uncharted journey, being asked questions that maybe we would just rather avoid. Where do I fit? That's a belonging question. Who am I? That's an identity question. And what am I made for? That's a purpose question. And every single one of us as human beings, we have to have those three questions answered. And we have to be satisfied in our core. If not, we'll just get kind of funky. We'll just kind of live out sideways. We'll, we'll contrive. We'll pretend. We'll posture. We'll do anything to kind of avoid these uncharted questions. And there was a man in the scriptures who also had trouble with that. His name was Moses. And you're like, wait a minute, Moses? Yeah, Mo they're like, wait, Moses, the one who like, like, like held up a staff and then the, the Red Sea just like formed cliffs and everyone walked through? That Moses? Yeah, that Moses. You mean Moses, the one that walked up to Mount Sinai and like saw the radiating face of God? Yeah, that, that Moses. You mean Moses, the guy that had like the stick and then it was a snake, stick, snake, stick, snake, like that guy? Yes. Yes, externally, he went on this uncharted journey. And it gets celebrated, and we'll look at it. But in those subterranean places of his soul, he wasn't quite sure how to answer the questions. Where do I fit? Who am I? And what am I made for? That's what we're going to look at here today. And for Moses, like for so many of us, and you might know we're focusing today on children in the foster care system, uh, children who have been adopted. But this is true for every single one of us. More often than not, the way that we answer those three questions, where do I fit, who am I, right? What am I made for? They are formed and shaped and filtered through the question or through an experience of a wound, of some form of wound that filters every way that we view ourselves. And it was no less true for Moses. So grab your Westside apps, go to your digital or your old school Bible, turn with me to Exodus 
chapter 2, here's what's going on. There's a new pharaoh in Egypt that doesn't know the story, doesn't know about the Hebrew people, doesn't know how they were saved from famine because of a man named Joseph. All this pharaoh knows is that the Hebrew people, these foreigners in his midst, they're growing in size and in strength. And in fear, he decides to oppress them, push them into slavery, and that doesn't work. They still grow more vigorous, and so he decides on genocide. And he issues an edict that every Hebrew boy that is born should be drowned in the River Nile. Well, there was a Hebrew woman who had a boy. Her name was Jochebed, and she refused to do that. She took her three-month-old baby in a papyrus basket, waterproofed it, laid him in it, covered him over, and as you could imagine, did the most unthinkable act for a loving parent. She, at some point, had to let go. And she relinquished her baby boy, Moses, which means drawn out of the reeds. That's what his name means. She relinquished him down the river Nile. And who knows for how long and who knows for how far, but the Pharaoh's daughter of all people comes down to bathe in the River Nile. She has her attendants when they hear off in, in the reeds of, of the river the, these sounds, and they come to look more closely. And here's where we find in verse 6, chapter 2 of Exodus, that she opened it, saw the baby, he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Remember what I said that oftentimes and early on in our lives, we experience a wound by which we actually view our lives and try to answer the question of our lives? I believe this was the moment for Moses. He, yeah, he's crying. We could go, well, babies cry, right? But as an adoptive father, I can just tell you there's a different cry to abandonment. And my daughter now is, is 14. I have her permission to share some of this but there is a different cry, and research would actually even say they've studied the cries within maternity wards, cries of babies that are going to be placed for adoption and cries of babies that will return home with their, their bio families, and they are radically different. We know that in utero, a baby somehow kind of knows in that interior space whether they are loved, whether they will be held and known, or whether they will be abandoned and neurochemically, we now know, like neuroscientists can look at this and, and, and go, oh, I can tell you what's happening in this moment of abandonment and in a, and in a season and context of genocide. Jacobad, the mom, is exploding internally with cortisol. She is in absolute survival mode doing whatever she can to save her baby. And we know neurochemically that's being passed on through and into the pl pl placenta onto this child. And this child is now just surging with cortisol. Why? Well, because God made us this way so that we can survive. So that fight, flight, fear, all those tendencies are in that, that survivalistic, protectionistic tendencies are all going on. And Moses' little tiny body is surging with it. And when you live in a chronic state of that, your ability to do relationship is really, really difficult. This is not just a baby crying because it's hungry. This is a different kind of cry. One of the prayers for us is that we would adopt our, our baby before 
she was a year old when we would get placed with her and matched with her. It was called Gotcha Day. And we actually were able to receive our daughter at the age for her of 10 and a half months. And we really, really celebrated it. Now, I would have some, some friends and people go, well, how, how, you know, how old was she when you got her? And, and we would say, well, 10 and a half months. And well, wow, that's awesome. And that's not very long, is what they would say. Well, think about it this way. Think about it for Moses. When you cry and cry and no one comes, and you cry and cry and no one comes, and you cry and cry and no one comes, that's a long time. And things chemically, physically, and in the deep interior of the soul begin to shape begin to try to answer those questions. Where do I fit? Who am I? And what am I made for? And I believe that's what was being formed and shaped in Moses. And as we read on just a little bit more in this chapter, Moses is going to get to the middle age of life. Look at me with me at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he's now 40, he went out to watch his own people and watch them hard at their labor. Moses is now in my stage of life. He's, he's, he's in that middle age stage. Well, he's actually about eight or nine years younger than me, but that's beside the point. But I know the questions he's starting to ask. He's starting to, to you know, he's getting on like uh, 23 and me. You know, he's looking at Ancestry.com. He's starting to ask all sorts of different questions. And now he's coming out. And who knows if he's done this a bunch, but it seems to be a very poignant moment where he's watching, it says, his own people. But he's watching them from a distance, from a distance in an emperor's cloak with all the Egyptian regalia that he's, he's clothed in. He's watching his oppressed own people. And he's got to be asking that question, where do I fit? To whom do I belong? You can just imagine the, all, all the different disparities socioeconomically. I mean, he was born a slave, but he's raised a prince. Could you imagine the contrast socioeconomically, politically, spiritually, culturally, all the traditions, all the sights, sounds, and smells? Everything is radically different. Physically, he looks different. From an ethnicity standpoint, he feels different. Ruth Haley Barton, she writes about this in her book, Strengthening the Soul of a Leader. Here's what she says about Moses' journey. He lived between two worlds and yet was not fully at home in either place. I wonder how many of us could relate to that. National Geographic, in, in an article, they wrote about called The Race Project. The Race Project was to ask people to write about their experience of race in six words. And so Esaias Maritab, from I believe he lives in Delaware, he wrote this. Black boy, white world, perpetually exhausted. If you're Moses, you would write... Hebrew boy, Egyptian world, perpetually exhausted. And if you just zoom in on Esaias' eyes, you see the exhaustion. 
And I wonder if we were to zoom into Moses, you would see the exhaustion of him just saying, where do I fit? I think I am too much Egyptian for the Hebrews, and I'm too much Hebrew for the Egyptians. And where do I belong? And I'm looking here at my own people. And it goes on to say, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and he's getting in touch with this, and he's looking this way, and that way, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And you can just sense that he's like, hey, I, I've done this, and now I'm one of you guys. And, and, and he literally, he said to them, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Moses is now persona non grata. I mean, he doesn't, he, he doesn't fit anywhere now. And now he goes out into the wilderness, into a, a whole new foreign land to him. And he's there for actually 40 years, I think, trying to work it out. Who am I? I already know I don't fit. So who am I? And if some little four-year-old girl came to Moses in that point in that state of time and said, who are you, who are you, who are you? By the way, I'd ask you the same thing. Some little four-year-old girl came to you and said, who are you, but who are you, but who are you? What would you say? By what reference point would you actually answer that question? Moses can't do it. In fact, he's there pretty early on sitting by a well when the seven daughters of this priest this Midianite priest named Jethro, they come to draw water and some other shepherds start to harass them. Moses rises up, comes to, to the rescue, chases away those shepherds, meets these daughters. They bring him into the home. He marries one of Jethro's daughters named Zipporah and they have a child named Gershom. Look what Gershom means if you turn to verse 22. Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. It's often the custom to kind of, to, to name something about the moment, something about the experience. What is Moses doing in this time? He's trying to work out his identity and all he can come up with is, I am a foreigner in a foreign land. And he could tack onto that, I am a fugitive to my adoptive people, the Egyptians. And he could tack onto that, I am a fraud to my bio people, the Hebrews. Foreigner, fugitive, and fraud. We would boil that down today, and we would call that what? The imposter syndrome, wouldn't we? That's a real common phrase. When you're living out of the hollow space of not knowing who you are, where you fit, or what you're made for. And I know that touches all of us pretty closely And Moses is sitting in this moment and in this place. And the good news is, is that he actually gets those questions answered for him. I believe it's over a long period of time. But in one defining moment, he is out under the stars one night. He is shepherding his father-in-law, Jethro's sheep. 
And then all of a sudden he comes up to this bush that is on fire. Could be possible that it was lightning. The only difference is this fire is not being extinguished. It is not going down. There doesn't seem to be like ash like that it's, that's forming underneath its bottom. And so he literally goes, what is this strange sight? And he walks towards it, and that's where he encounters the living God. Because from this bush that's shooting out flame comes the voice of God that calls Moses and says, I'm going to send you back to the Pharaoh, and you're going to call the Pharaoh to stand down. And then you're going to lead my people out of Egypt into a promised land. And it all sounds terrific, but Moses has some issues with it. And we see it in verse... 13, actually verse 11, chapter 3. But Moses says to God, who am I? You hear that? There's the identity question. He didn't go, all right, game on, let's go. I've been waiting for this moment all my life. He's literally working out that question. Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God says, well, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses asks a very uh, great question. Who am I? We've got to ask that question. But then he asks a better question, which is to this voice from an inextinguishable bush, he asks, who are you? See, that's the question we really need to start with. Who are you? And then he gets his answer. But here's how he asks it. He says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Because God said, first you're going to go to the Israelites, talk to the elders, then you're all going to go to the Pharaoh. He says, suppose I do that. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Did you notice he says the God of your fathers? And they ask me, what is his name? What is this God's name? Then what should I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Did you notice that Moses says, you want me to go to them and say uh, that your God, your father's. And how does God answer? He goes, no, Moses, these are your fathers, and I am your God, and my name is I am. And the syntax of of that is I am who I am who I am. I, I am who I will be, who I will be, who I will be, that there is a holy echo for eternity. In perpetuity, the name of God just goes from one generation to another generation to another generation. And for Moses in this moment, the fugitive meets his forever in the immovable rock of who God is. The one who it says in Revelation, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the one whom we know in Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In this moment, before this burning bush, the foreigner, the fugitive, and the fraud is invited into God's forever family. And that's powerful. And for every single one of us, that's where it starts. That's the foundation. By the way, we can't possibly answer all three of those like 
hugely important core questions to anyone's satisfaction. Where do I fit? Who am I? What am I made for? But I will tell you this. We can't look anywhere else to anyone else. We can't look inside. We can't look outside. But we look to the burning bush, to the inextinguishable flame, to the living God whose name echoes throughout all eternity. If you want to be a grounded and integrated human being, it's not found in just who you are. It's found in whose you are. And that was Moses' moment where I believe everything shifted. Now, in a moment, we'll come back to that third question. What am I made for, for Moses? But I just want to pause, and I, I want to say, as you know, Westside, it is our heart to be for those who feel outside the family circle. It is our heart to be for those who can't answer those questions, and so much of their lives have been shaped and formed through the wound of their abandonment. Children that have been placed for adoption, children that have been placed in the foster care system. And in fact, you know, we're coming up on uh, our Thanksgiving offering next week. And you just need to know that when you give to Westside, you've already made a choice to give to this. To families, adoptive families with, foster, with children in the foster care system. And even to how we care for the whole network of care including our social workers. We have a ministry called Network 127. I want to invite out Jen Decker, our fearless leader in that space. She's going to bring with her some friends of Westside, some social workers named Leah and Kelsey, and let's have them come on out right now. Let's welcome them. Come on up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, um... I really wanted to talk to you guys today because we're talking about people in the in-between space, not knowing who they are. And that describes who you work with, people who you're standing in the gap for people who are certainly misplaced, right? Leah, just tell us a little bit about what it is you do. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Leah. I am a permanency case manager over at KBC. And so mainly what I do is work with uh, families whose children have have been removed from their home, and um, I work with them on reintegration. And Leah, tell me about these parents you work with. These are, these are people who feel judged by society. Something's happened, something's gone wrong, and they've lost their kids. But yeah. what do you want people to know about these parents? So the main thing that I want people to know is that these families, oftentimes they come from impoverished backgrounds. Oftentimes they've had awful childhoods themselves. So really, Oftentimes, abuse and neglect is really a generational thing, and that mistakes or anything in that regards in um, when coming to raising their children, these things can be rehabilitated and they can be forgiven um, for what things did go on before the kids were removed from their care. Yeah, I, I think when I'm at my worst, I want to know that someone still believes better is possible for me. And that's where you guys come into State of the Gap. So, Kelsey, I'd like to hear from you. You kind of came into social work through an interesting path. Tell us about that. So, my husband and I became foster parents last year, um, in the beginning of 2020. And then... Um, and then you were 
put in your house with these kids for a whole year. Yeah, right. yeah, that was great fun. timing. Um, so, and then we weren't planning on adopting, but we opened our home to a teenage girl last year, and we're in the process of adopting her and her brother. And we have three birth children, so our house is at capacity. Yeah. <laughs> but I still wanted to work with these families, and, and especially the biological parents. Tell me why. What What is the most fulfilling part of what you're doing now? I think being able to offer hope to people who feel hopeless when they have nobody else to yeah. support them or, or encourage them or believe in them. Right. And in a social worker's world, you guys are like seen as heroes and celebrated everywhere you go. The parents are thrilled with you. The kids are thrilled with you. The judge is thrilled with you. Is that, I'm, am I misrepresenting that? Tell us what it's like. Oh, we have some, yeah, we make a lot of people mad. That's just a part of our job because the parents think that you stole their kids from them and then um, the attorneys think that maybe you're not doing a great job and then the foster parents are mad at you because they're worried about the kid, which is understandable, but there's we play a lot of parts. Yeah, tell us more about that, Leah. So as a case manager, not only do you work with the kids and their foster parents, you work with the bio families. Sometimes that in can include their grandparents, aunt, uncles, whoever mm. is really invested in the case. Um, and on top of that, you also work with attorneys. You work, um, you go to regular court hearings regarding the, fa uh, the kids. And oftentimes you're left with many people angry at you um, for whatever decision you have made regarding the kids. And oftentimes we can't really help that. Isn't part of this situation there too is that you hold information that not everyone involved has access to. So you know when you're protecting someone from something but they may not understand the full decision of, of why you have to do what you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we, um, uh, sorry. I'm no, thinking. that's okay. <laughs> I, I think we covered it. So here's the thing. What does it mean as a, as a church? We've just over the years demonstrated a commitment to children in foster care, to the families that care for them. And over the last five years, we really wanted to make a commitment to um, social workers and case managers. What's it, what's it like to know that there's a church out there that's praying for you and encouraging you? What's it like to get something that says, we care? It, it is so life-changing. Um, being a social worker is such a thankless career, and you often have people that are very upset with you for um, a multitude of reasons. Um, and so oftentimes, um, throughout the week, it's recommended that you partake in self-care and just remember, you know, it's not about you, it's about the families you're serving. So um, getting thanks really is um, a life-changing thing for social workers because um, everything we do is, it deals with the bad parts of society. Yeah. What else would you like to add, Kelsey? Um, I would just say, I was actually reading my Bible this morning, and I was looking at 1 Corinthians 12, and it states we all are part of the body of Christ, and we all have different parts to play. And so the encouragement that we receive from a congregation like this, it really helps us keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, we certainly want you guys to keep standing in the gap because it is so important that someone sees hope for these kids and for these families as they wrestle through their identity. And they're kind of in an in, a in between and uh, just thank you so much for what you do for these kids. We appreciate you. Thanks for having us. I mean, that, that's, a, uh, that's a very nice applause, Westside, but I mean, seriously, for who they are and what they do day in and day out, I think this, if you're able, let's stand and let's just go crazy and say thank you so much, Kelsey and Leah. Yeah. And hey, 
In fact, um, hopefully on your way in, you've got one of these cards. You can go ahead and take a seat if you are able, but grab one of these cards if you have them. That, okay, here's what we want to do. We don't want to just, uh, we don't want the clap to go away. So if you would grab a pen, take one of these, and I just want you to write a short note, just a, hey, you have no idea what you mean. You're writing to our caseworkers, you're writing to our social workers in our city. Whether they're believers or not, they're going to receive these throughout the year as a way just to say, hey, we are for you. We can't even imagine how hard your work is, but you have to know it matters. Okay, so you don't have to write like a full, you know, treatise. It's just like... Uh, a sentence or two, maybe a, a quick scripture reference if you've got it. If something just pops on, uh, on your heart, just put it down. And then on your way out today, there are baskets uh, right around where you grab these. And just would you place those in there so we could get them to them. Good? So just be sitting as we worship and, and be thinking as we wrap here today, what, what do you want to write? And just start writing whenever and however. I want to come back to this. The third question, what am I made for? Again, all these are like so huge and big. And we get a sense in summation from Hebrews chapter 11. Just this beautiful kind of 40,000 foot view of Moses and his uncharted journey by faith. Verse 24, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He, per he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Because he saw him who, for the first time, this fugitive met his forever. And that changed his sense of purpose. Think about this for a moment. He goes and he stands down the Pharaoh and ultimately gathers the people and they head through the Red Sea and guess what? They are now by the thousands and thousands. They are fugitives. And for the next 39, almost 40 years as fugitives in search of the promised land, they're gonna be led wandering through the desert by Moses the fugitive. See what God's doing there? All that time, even through the wound, even through the pain, even through the questioning and through the doubt, God was preparing Moses as one who knows what it's like to be a foreigner in a foreign land, as one who knows what it's like to be on the run, to lead an entire people in that. See, we call that a sovereign foundation that God was laying a foundation in Moses' life all those years preparing him for that moment in time. Isn't that cool? You see the foresight of God in that moment, but can you see his foresight for you? And whatever you're in right now, he's preparing you. There is purpose. Nothing goes to waste. Here's, here's a second and last observation. So they are wandering through the desert. Moses is led up to Mount Sinai, up to this top of the mountain, where he encounters God and is given the Ten Commandments, which include things like, thou shalt not steal, covet, murder. Who did God entrust with the Ten Commandments? 
a murderer, one who killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Isn't that amazing? You see, embedded in even the code of how we're to live and right and wrong is this beautiful thing called grace. That you and I, no matter where we've gone, no matter what we've done, we find our forever family in God. We find that he is preparing us. We find that he is forgiving us. We find this beautiful picture of grace for our lives. And I believe there are burning bushes all over where God is speaking to you, where God is tending to you, where God is preparing and shaping each and every single one of us to not only say who are you and where do you fit, but actually whose are you? You are his, you and I. We are the sons and daughters of the king of heaven. We wear his cloak and his robe. And so if you're going, wow, didn't know that, I just want to say it is true. And if that truth is rising up in you, we just want to encourage you, go out into the commons here if you're at the Lenaxa campus. There are folks that would love to talk to you about that. They're wearing red shirts. And one of the things we do is we actually go down into the waters. There's what we call a baptismal out there where you can go down with your old life and all those questions and come up out of the water identifying with the risen Christ, the one who died and rose and will return again. That's the foundation beneath our feet. And if you've never stepped into that relationship, if you've never given public proclamation of that you are his and he is yours, I say, why wait? And let him tend to you, let him heal you, let him meet you, and let the purposes of God flow through you. And if you're like, well, I don't know about that, but I, I'm kind of digging this place, then I just want to encourage you, head to the commons area. There's a little connect space where we do west side and four, four things in four minutes. If you want to pray, there's a group of folks that love to pray here on the Lenexa campus right in the prayer room. Speedway, down here to my left for baptism, for, for prayer, online community. Just post what your question is. By the way, also post your your. Uh, your note of gratitude to the social workers and caseworkers, and we'll write that note for you and hand it to them. And with that, let's stand together if you are able. And we bring into a time of worship our questions. We bring into a time of worship our journey, our story, all the uncharted ways in which we're growing. But here and now we give proclamation to the one who is and will be and always is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we sing together.